with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 49. We will start at verse 14 as far as our focus is concerned this morning. We'll go to the first few verses of chapter 50. Very difficult portion to decide how to divide up because this is um, a lengthy section of a series of speeches um, that God gives to his people. It also has another theme running, the servant, uh, the second of the servant songs in chapter 49. Uh, There are four of them all together overlapping themes, so it's hard to pick which sections to bring to you each week. I have chosen this middle section of this larger uh, message of the coming servant that God accepts. Servant Israel has failed. Israel Jesus, the representative, is accepted. And we see this in the first verses of chapter 49 where God the Father, God the King, accepts God the Son, God the Servant's sacrifice on behalf of us people. It's a beautiful picture of victory, yet the first verse that we'll start to look at, verse 14, which I won't read in full, just what you have on your outline, but verse 14, the response to this is very anticlimactic. But Zion, the people of God there, Israel, said... The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. You see, there's a discipline that God works in us through his word, and it's a tough one because of our situation. It's always been this way for the people of God, though. I don't mean just us. Anytime the people of God have received God's word and opened up the scriptures like we're doing, they are in a context. It could be one of great blessing. It could be one of great hardship. It could be a corporate blessing where the the whole of us sense it, uh, or individual blessing in your own life. Or it could be great hardship that could be for the body of Christ, corporate, or you personally could be going through something awful as a result of the fall, just the nature of living in a sinful world as sinful people. And so we always come with a context, and there's a, an effort on the part of the prophets to develop in the people of God a discipline, a discipline to look to the final thing that God will do to bring glory to his name. And that's tough because we're enamored with whatever's happening. But I know this is God's way. This is what he wants because he keeps doing it over and over again in Scripture. And we have it in Isaiah throughout. The people are under great duress, much of it because of their own doing. But there are faithful people who have faith in the Messiah to come um, who are just caught up in this nation that's largely walked away from God. So he brings discipline in the different forms of the nations. Assyria first, now he's raising up Babylon as this passage is first written and spoken to the people of God. And so they're wondering, is God, has God left us? Is, are his promises true? And he responds by telling that, ultimately, I will fulfill all my covenant promises through the one faithful Israelite, the servant. And so that gives them hope. But at the same time, they're still seeing things around them collapse. They're getting taken to captivity. And so God gives them these promises that are not just about some fulfillment in their lifetime. They see a prototype of that. Some of them get to see it, not many. But really what he's picturing here is for all of us to picture the greater work that God's doing, and that will develop in us a greater comfort in God's glory no matter what our situation is. That's tough. That's a discipline. It's something that's developed. It's the more we spend time reading God's word and God's perspective, we start to gain it. Someone who's old in the faith, who's seen a lot in their life, walk with Christ a long ways, They often get this. You see them at the end of their days realizing how precious are the ultimate promises of God. They will soon taste them, 
as they go to be with him in his presence, but they start to appreciate that's what this is all about. It's a return back to the paradise that was lost before sin and brought great glory to God and gave us the sense of satisfaction that we were created to have as human beings. Because that's broken in the fall, God brings redemption and he gives us a new focus. There's a lot of complexity. It's not all simple when we start to dig into the word, but we will always benefit when we dig in. And here's a portion of scripture that is certainly complex, but as we walk through slowly, I hope that you will gain a greater appreciation for what God wants to cultivate in us, his people, as we consider him. For now, let's start as I read verse 22 down to the third verse of chapter 50, but we will go back to 14 to begin the sermon. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word, Isaiah 49, I'll start at verse 22. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations, and they and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea, I make the rivers a desert, their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, sometimes uh, we need to be jarred. Sometimes we lose the wonder of your presence, the wonder of your glorious plan. We become a bit ho-hum about your greatness and what you will do. We become too busy sometimes with this life or too overwhelmed with busyness. Our lives get crowded with stuff and events, difficult things, sometimes blessed things, and we fail to pause and reflect on your greatness and your plan, your restoration of all things through Jesus. Forgive us for our times of weak faith, when we may be despondent 
maybe even practice outright disbelief. Awaken us by the testimony of your powerful word this morning. Invigorate us by the picture of your character revealed in this passage that we have before us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the great pictures that we have painted for us in Scripture is, is one we can certainly relate with. The people of God gain this picture of being scattered. You see this in the Old Testament as the people come under God's discipline. They're never really brought together again like they were, say, under David and into Solomon's reign. Those were really the high points, at least if you were looking at Israel, you would say that was the golden era under David and Solomon, the building of the temple, under the victories and so forth. They never really saw anything like that again in their history. So the picture that God will often paint to help the people of God after that era think of what God will do is one of gathering. And we see it here. Now I want you to think of it this way. If you have children who are grown, uh, they're college age and beyond, they probably left the house. And during the holiday seasons, you usually will have an opportunity, if you're blessed enough. Not everybody has this opportunity because people spread out all over the country. They have obligations and things and they can't always come back. But I see many of you when you have your child or children come, and there's a, there's a look on your face that's different when your kids are home, especially when they're grown, because you know it doesn't happen often. Now, when you're where I am right now, where you're facing children starting to leave the home, it's hard to imagine. I, I look ahead, and I can sort of see it through you, but there is something about parents gathering their kids back into the house, even if it's for a day or two during the holidays. I see it with my, my in-laws, with Sherry's parents. Um, she has two brothers, and we don't live that far apart, but it's not like we can get together all the time with the busyness of life, and certainly not with them either. But during Thanksgiving and about Christmas time, we all come together in their house, and we cram in, and we, I get to see the look of joy that they have seeing their kids there. It's been a long time since they were all under their roof. Now they're gathered back in, and there's a certain joy they have, and when we pause long enough, we can see it in them. And it makes us feel good, too, that we're all together and they feel good about being together. And there's something satisfying about that. It doesn't happen often in this life. We don't always get to feel this. It becomes more infrequent. But this is the exact sentiment that God is, is displaying by this metaphor when he uses parental illustrations for what it feels like to gather in his people. And for his people to recognize, God will have great joy and great glory will be shown to him when he finally gathers all those who he has redeemed to himself. It's a process he's working now, but we're all spread out throughout the earth. But he's redeeming people all over the earth. And no matter how bad it may look in our locale or a given location, make no mistake, he's growing the number of people who come to him. And eventually, in that great and final day, we'll see the ultimate gathering where he will be glorified as he's brought all of his own to himself. And we'll have a satisfaction and a joy in this as well. God wants us to develop a discipline for looking forward to that. Not to be so heavenly minded we're no earthly good, not that. Just in the midst of earth, realize what God's working and how he's doing it through us, his people, united to his servant. This is the picture the scriptures paint and what we start to see here in this poetic section of Isaiah's prophecy. What we have are people who are struggling under the day they live, often because of what they have brought, and so they doubt God's goodness. God counters their disbelief or their despondency to his message of the servant 
he counters with a picture of himself and who he is. The same picture we have to have to develop this discipline of looking forward to what God is doing. God counters unbelief and despondency or unresponsiveness when we're not responsive to what he says he'll do. He counters that with, you might say, more revelation about who he is in a way to kind of shake us out of what we're thinking or what we're not thinking. Look with me at the passage, chapter 49. We'll start back at verse 14, like I mentioned, so have that open. We have on display here God's reaction to despondency in his people, the despondency revealed in verse 14, when Zion says, the Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. Remember, this comes right after he promises the servant, and the servant announces his coming, Messiah's coming. And they respond by saying, yeah, you could see what they're saying. Yeah, that may be in the future, but right now, things are bad, and God seems to have forsaken me. So God in these verses, 14 to 21, shows himself to be ever mindful, not forgetting, promise-keeping, and though it may seem like he's far off, he's not. Zion says, the Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. But look at the response, verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child? I mean, the ultimate rhetorical question clearly no, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? So the people may think God has forgotten, but God's comparing himself to a nursing mother. A nursing mother never, ever forgets their child. In fact, he goes one further in the second part of verse 15, even these, these moms, even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. So whatever it is you're going through, I have not forgotten you. I am mindful. I remember I will keep my promise, my ultimate promise to keep you. Verse 16, behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. And not on the outside of his arm or some other place. And the palm of his hands where he can always see his commitment to saving us. That's his covenantal promise and message. It's a deposit engraved upon the palm of his hands. Your walls, your situation... Um, your walls are a depiction of what they saw as their security, are ever before. He, he sees them in where they are. Because when God elects, when God chooses, when God sets his love and promise upon someone, upon us, he does not forsake. It may feel like he's far off, but he's not. And that's what he's trying to show the people of God. Our situation might cause us to wonder, but God's declaration here is to wonder not. Whatever the situation is that you find yourself in today, you can know for sure that God has not forsaken you, his child. God has given his son as a covenant, a commitment, a surety. We see this in the verses preceding in the opening of, verse, of chapter 49. Others might forsake you or leave you, but God will not. Your health will eventually fail you, but God will not. Life may deal you some terrible hand, but God will uphold you in ultimate reality. None of these things that happen to us, none of what we find around us, means that God has left us or ceased to remember us. This is why Jesus says so wonderfully himself in John chapter 10, my father who has given them to me, speaking of those who have been given to him by the father, God the father to God the son, he is greater than all. 
and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Back to verse 16. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. God paints an astonishing picture that entails uh, this gathering picture. He starts to develop this idea of gathering his people to himself. Verse 17, your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. So there's a sense in which the people will find themselves in captivity. They will find their place overrun. And then in an instance, that will be relieved. And then it says in verse 18, and that, by the way, something they couldn't imagine at that moment, but verse 18 says, then lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them, bind them on as a bride does. So this thing you thought you have lost as you've been dispersed, as you look around and you're, you're despondent about the promises, I'm going to move your captors out and bring back to you your people. Now, this is not a picture just meant to be interpreted by immediate Israel here. We see this widening. This is a picture of God's ultimate gathering in the sense his people will have when he does this. Verse 19, surely your waste in your desolate places, in your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants. And those who swallowed you up will be far away. You'll go from having the land completely, completely abandoned because people have taken, been taken away in exile. It's been ransacked. But it's going to turn around to where he brings so many back to himself, his people, called by his name, that there won't be, it will seem like there won't be room for all the people he's gathering. It'll be so different from the, the picture, the desperate picture of despair you're now thinking, people of God. Verse 20, the children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, the place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. People, kids you thought you no longer had. Or people that were no longer related. Now they'll say, where do we go? There's not enough room for us. It's a picture of this being overwhelmed with the gathering of God. Verse 21, then you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. But who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? There will be this amazement about what God does in gathering people to himself. Now, we know this isn't just about what happens 70 years later. You know what happens. They go to Babylon. Persia takes Babylon. And Persia, through Cyrus, allows the people of God to go back to Jerusalem. But this never paints a picture just like it was in Jerusalem. It was always, always minuscule compared to what Isaiah starts to picture and builds up as a picture. Clearly, that's just a foretaste of the ultimate gathering God will bring to himself on that great and final day. He says to them, you will be amazed by what God does out of the rubble and ruin. You will not believe how many that I call to myself, God says. Because God remembers his promises to his people. And remember who his people are, the people of Abraham. Who are the people of Abraham, really? Galatians says, those who trust in Christ, the seed of Abraham, who is the seed of the woman, who will crush the head of the serpent, who will be the second Adam and the perfect Israelite, and we rest in him, and we are his people. His people are expanded, just like the Abrahamic promise, to be a blessing to the nations, and that's who he would gather. And when we, the people of God, start loving that picture, we start seeing the glory of God and what he does and bringing people from all over the globe to himself, 
It starts to change our outlook no matter what our circumstances now. The person persecuted in another part of the world right now can look to this picture and know that God will be glorified even though they're suffering where they are and the church is under great pressure. But ultimately, it will not be this way. And we could glory in that day and look forward to that day as our Father gathers his children with great joy. We then have satisfaction. I love what one commentator said about this portion of Isaiah. He wrote, This is the future of the church by God's decree. His people will someday look around and blink with amazement. Can this be? All these multitudes gathered into the bosom of the church, even in our barrenness and our futility. What on earth has happened? The growth of the church will be too vast to be explainable by any human plan, too massive to be accommodated by any human program. However you take things to work out, as Scripture declares, surely this great last day of the great gathering that God calls to himself will manifest the totality of his amazing redemption all over the earth. The people were feeling like God abandoned them, but God responds by saying, I'm not a covenant breaker. I'm mindful of your situation. I'm still working my promises to their fulfillment. They were swallowed by their self-focus, absorbed by their plight. Even some of their disobedience brought them to where they are. But God responds with revelation about his mindful watch care over them. And he paints a further picture starting in verse 22 where we read earlier of his victory, his sure victory and his gathering in even more fullness, this theme of gathering once again. Verse 22, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples and they shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. The immediate picture is a people in exile who've been taken up by the nations around them and those children coming back to them. Now, we know it's not exactly literal because 70-odd years and more go on, so their children would no longer be children. The idea is that from all the nations, God's people will start to show up. God will actually use those nations as incubators for his people wherever they may be, wherever his gospel goes forward. God predicts the gathering of souls. God foretells the mighty work of salvation that he will do despite how bad things looked for the nation of Israel at that time. They were slouching towards Babylon. They were heading towards captivity, yet God was declaring and calling of the nations to himself. Verse 23, kings shall be your foster fathers. In other words, even though they're in nations where they don't believe in God, God will still raise them up there. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. I know it's easy for us to think in places where Christianity is illegal that there's just no way the church could rise up. Isn't it terrible to be there? That's exactly the opposite of what God does over and over. So even the pagan kings of foreign lands cannot suppress the calling of God to his people through his gospel. This is what he does. Verse 23, the second part, then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Speaking of waiting for someone is synonymous with saying that you trust in them. You don't run ahead independently. Rather, you stop and you wait for them to inform, to direct, and to lead. God calls us to wait on him. He's the victor. 
the wise one waits for him, and they won't be put to shame. Verse 24 asks an obvious question, a good question, especially if you're doubting what he said. Boy, this seems very optimistic, God. I don't see how you can do this. In fact, you might ask this question, verse 24. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? I mean, these are situations that once, once a hawk grabs a mouse and starts to eat it, can you really rescue the mouse any longer? If there's a tyrant, one with so much power, who has imprisoned somebody, aren't they lost? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. I can save you from that, is what he says. I can save my own from that. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. I will call my children from the nations, even though it may look like it's impossible for a rescue or a redemption. He's posing a very hopeless scenario, showing his victorious hand will not be stayed, and the gathering will not be stopped. Verse 26 brutal picture that shows something literally but then also spiritually a metaphor or a picture. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Now what does that mean? In ancient warfare, one of the most common ways to win a victory rather than send all your men into battle, you would just surround a city And you would lay siege to the city. You would let nothing in, nothing out. No food and water in. Uh, And so therefore you would starve them out till they forfeited. In some cases though they would not forfeit. They would stay and they would stay. And eventually they turned to cannibalism. There is absolute record for this kind of thing happening in antiquity. Rather than giving up, they would turn to something like this. Cannibalism. That's the picture. You cannot... Fight against God and win. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Now, it's not just meant to be a literal picture of victory for Israel. I don't believe. No one can remain an enemy of God without self-destructing. You cannot live in opposition with God without turning on yourself. That's the picture. Alec. Moitier says wonderfully, those who choose their own way are in the end self-destructive. And it is part of divine justice which rules the world to affect this outcome. And what happens as a result of this victory on the part of God, verse 26, second part, then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior. You'll know when I do this thing, when I turn these people to myself, when it's on display, when those who oppose me are defeated, then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Now into the next chapter, God continues this revelation of himself. This is where I struggled, should I stay with chapter 50 for next week, because it has a perfect outline in it. But I think this is still meant to kind to tag on to this section and lead us to the next. So look at the first few verses of chapter 50. Again, it's all seeming to respond to what we saw in verse 14, the despondency or disbelief of the people where they said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Now verse 1 of chapter 50. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Now it's true that God disciplined them by allowing them into captivity, by in fact ordaining it. 
but it's not the same as signing a final decree of divorce saying, I forsake you. He was disciplining, not cutting off. And that's what he's saying here. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? He may have sent her away, but he he wasn't divorcing them is what he's saying. Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? So it's clear they were given up to somebody, but does God have a creditor? No, he may have sold them, but he has not taken out a loan for it. He doesn't owe anything for it. He can buy you back immediately. That's what he's saying to these people immediately, and we can gather this more figuratively. Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. So yes, there are serious consequences to their sin, but he has not cut them off. He has not forgotten his covenant commitment. They were disciplined. God rebukes them for their despondency. There are consequences immediate for it. But here we have a picture of his final gathering, and he will redeem them. So he is powerful, more powerful than those who hold them. He's more powerful than those who they have been sold to, if you will. He can redeem at any moment. He's allowing them this exile so they understand who they must depend upon. Verse 2, why? Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? I've been calling with my gospel, with my good news, through the prophet Isaiah, through the history of Israel. Why, when I make this, why does nobody answer? I mean, this is why you're going into exile. This is why you're disciplined. No one's answering. No one's seeing why this is so. And by the way, brothers and sisters, what a picture we have before us over and over in Scripture. Please, Lord, that we would not be so despondent when we see God call to repentance. Because God says to them, why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? The second part of verse 2 shows his power to redeem. Is my hand shortened? Of course not. God's hand's never shortened. Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? It absolutely could redeem at any moment. That's the message. Or have I no power to deliver? No, the opposite is true. I am powerful to deliver, no matter what your situation. Verse 2, the second part again. Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I can speak and divide the waters. They've seen it in their history. He can do this thing that nobody else can do. He could even stop the light from the sun to come, as he did in history, so that you could not see. If this God can do that, certainly he can redeem them. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The power that God displays in these pictures is the same power he uses to redeem us, to sustain us. Who else but God could do this? So we have had before us words from God to us as people in times of despondency or doubt or disbelief despite what he's revealed. And we need these times to kind of jar us. That's God's grace to us. On the one hand, it's easy for Christians to get depressed with the way things are. And we might think that the world around us is collapsing because of our given situation. And I could be in another place and say the same thing and people hearing would relate too. Maybe this is true for you individually. You feel your life is a mess and you cannot see God's favor in it. And God says to you, behold 
I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. I'm mindful of your situation. He says to you, I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Now maybe we as a people of God, the church, we see trends around us or feel defeated on various fronts. And God says to us, Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. I am the Lord your Savior, he says to us, his people, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. But whatever our immediate individual case, whatever our immediate individual sense is the people of God united, God wants us to know that he is ever mindful, he is a promise-keeping God, he has not forgotten and never will forget. He's the one who wins the final victory, no matter what it looks like at this given moment. He will have total 100% success in gathering in his children, and we will be amazed on that great day when we see the myriads of people he has redeemed and called to himself. No one can stop him. He is the ultimate power in the universe. And he is using that power to redeem us through his servant, pictured earlier and hereafter and even more. No Christian should ultimately be despondent or otherwise downcast about the prospects of God. Ray Ortland said so wisely in responding to verse 21, where it speaks of the shock of seeing all these gathered. And I will close with this. It won't be our faith that grows the church, but only God's deep resolve to show mercy to more and more sinners. In the final triumph of his grace, we won't congratulate ourselves on a job well done, but rather we'll stutter in amazement. Behold, like it says in verse 21, I was left alone. From where have all these come? Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Dear Father, it is certainly a recurrent theme in your word to display your mighty saving power